0: It is a marked note of opportunity that we each have again this evening and a blessed one at that, to be able to come together in the calmness and the serenity of the close of this day and to enjoy as we already have these lovely songs and hymns in which we've sung, the prayer in which we've all collectively approached our Great Heavenly Father, and the marvelous fellowship that we've all enjoyed at that. Just prior to the service tonight, several of us had the great bounty of a terrific meal and certainly to those ladies who prepared that, Highest compliments to you, and we thank you very, very much for that. And I'll attempt in my preaching to not let that, in fact, hamper me too much. Some made comments as if I may need to be extraordinarily well tonight to ward off the matters of sleepiness. I I will attempt to do my part at that. But perhaps even better than that, God and His Word will certainly allow us, I hope, to be challenged, encouraged, edified as we consider it. My family and I, again, would wish to express our highest thanks to the Montrose Church for your invitation to us to be with you. It certainly has been an enjoyable week for us already. And yet, we look forward also to to the remaining events and the remaining nights as well. Your compliments, your generosity, your fellowship has truly been fantastic. And again, we, we certainly would wish to thank you for that. We have endeavored throughout this week to look at some troubling compromises confronting the church. And as we have looked at them, it has been our goal to perhaps prepare ourselves so that we could understand at least what the religious world is facing and some of the rather tragic decisions that are being made. Courses that are being pursued by some congregations that aren't even really that far from our location, but yet they break our heart as we think about the courses that they're pursuing. Our goal has been to remind ourselves of God's truth on these matters. And so it was yesterday morning that we looked interestingly, first of all, at the matter of relativism and learned again that it is not what we think, but it's what God says. And we shall not be judged on that day of judgment by what you and I thought or by what we perceive, but rather by our life as it measured up to or failed to do so with regard to the revelation of God. Then at the Bible study hour, we looked at the compromise on the age of the earth and noticed that whereas many would quickly assert that the age is numbered into the billions of years, God's Word will not permit that kind of age. And we reminded ourselves that the age is far, far less than that. We also noticed yesterday afternoon that we looked at another compromise as it relates to the subject of denominationalism, how that sometimes those matters too are creeping or at least working their way gradually into the thinking of some of the courses of our brotherhood. And we learn that that's dangerous, that it is not according to the will of God. But we must be aware that it is always thus saith the Lord and not what others may choose to pursue. Tonight as we come to another lesson in this series, we shall look at one entitled as follows the compromise of divorce and remarriage. And as we take a look at that, using again the Word of God as our guide, we will appreciate so easily and so well that this too is a subject. It indeed is a topic that is a controversial one in the mind of many, and it is one that many churches struggle with as to what to do with this. What decisions must elders, for instance, make? And what should preachers preach on subjects related to this topic? It is something, of course, that touches very, very many lives, very, very many families, very, very many congregations. Tonight, as we proceed to move in a way toward discussing it, might I invite you to think just a moment about one of the things we must be aware of. And certainly all of us, as we give thought to this, would not find this surprising. This is a topic that can be emotionally charged, it is a topic that can be fraught with personal considerations as individuals personally deal with this, either in their personal families or in individuals close to them. It can be a topic that is fraught with potential difficulties in relation to how it might be taken. Our goal as always is merely to ask, what has God said about it? And when you and I will appreciate the thoroughness and directness of His will, we will find that that is always the best course of action. Wasn't it asked of the long ago, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, 25. And so with that in mind, might I invite us to give some thought tonight to the biblical teaching on the subject of marriage, as well as divorce and also remarriage. It is with that in mind that I would invite us to look for the first part of the lesson at the topic of marriage itself. It seems to me far easier and also more directly in relation to God's Word to at least re-embed in our mind those practical and beautiful thoughts concerning the marriage institution and then we'll discuss about the possibility of its termination or its breaking, if you please. And so with that in mind, Let's discuss the issue of marriage, if we might. And along the way, we'll each be reminded of the great blessing that this is, not only to perhaps you and me personally, but to the human family at large. I'd like to begin with this quotation. As you can see, it certainly is not original with me. It, in fact, appeared in the Gospel Advocate many, many years ago. Perhaps some of you have read it or encountered it it in earlier places but I think it's interesting to at least listen to what Brother H. Leo Bowles wrote again in the Gospel Advocate many decades ago now. I have written it there for your consideration, and I'd just like to read it. Marriage is an institution ordained of God for the honor and happiness of mankind in which one man and one woman enter into a bodily and spiritual union, pledging each to the other's mutual love honor, fidelity, sympathy, forbearance, and comradeship, such as should assure an unbroken continuance of their wedlock so long as both shall live. As Brother Bowles penned that now again so long ago, it does, though it's not an inspired statement certainly. It has many thoughts within it that nonetheless do harmonize so well with the biblical presentation And I would invite us over the next few moments to give some thought to what God has said in His Word about marriage. And I believe we shall discover that so much of what was penned in in that statement was an attempt on His part to summarize what the Scriptures teach on this subject. It is with that in mind, I'd like for us to consider some of these points. First of all, and this is a very significant one indeed, One of the very first statements in that remark that was just made was that marriage is an institution ordained of God. That must be thoroughly ingrained in our minds if we are ever to appreciate what marriage by God was intended to be. It is ordained by and of Him. We may retrace those events in Genesis, the second chapter. As God looked upon the creation up to that point, He recognized that but one thing was not good. But one thing, there was Adam, and we notice in Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. We notice that all the beauty, all the majesty, all the pristine perfectness that associated to the creation was not as God ultimately and finally would have wished it to be because the man was alone. At that point, God set out on His initiative to remedy that situation, to remedy that shortcoming. And we remember the way in which He did that. He brought a deep sleep upon Adam, and from his side He removed that rib, and with that He fashioned a woman. He brought her to the man, and in the last three verses of that chapter, we particularly notice first Adam's reply that she was taken out of man, so she be called woman, but also God's reply, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Isn't it did an amazing stroke of divine genius to give consideration and thought to the simplicity, but yet the profoundness of that set of events. Isn't it true then that much later Solomon could make many remarks about the beauty and the power of marriage? But isn't it also amazing that our Savior could in fact hearken us back to this point even during His dialogue and teaching in Matthew 19.4. Suffice it to say at this point, marriage is not the idea of man. It was not put together by a panel of sociologists. No panel of psychologists or psychiatrists dreamed it up. It was an institution from the great mind of the infinite God of heaven. And it still is true that His understanding is infinite, Psalm 147 verse 5. It still is true that He is capable of all matters that are, of course, in alignment with His will. With that in mind then, isn't it fair to say that all the rules and regulations and perceptions and all the matters that man may have with what he considers regarding marriage don't measure up to God because God founded it. He created it. He instituted it. Thus, He has the blueprint for it. But not only that point, consider another. Marriage, you see, also yields honor and happiness for the human family. For mankind, if you will. In fact, consider just a few of these points again. There was that word that was employed in the King James translation of Genesis 2.18. I will make him and help me that word really in the Hebrew means a helper suitable for him. There was to be no companion for Adam amongst any of the animal family. You might remember that at that point God caused the animals to pass before Adam and He named them. Notice that certainly God knew all along that there was no helpmate for Adam amongst the animals. That exercise, I'm convinced, was for the benefit of Adam so that he would forever more understand and know that none of these animals are his companions like the one that God was shortly to make for him, Eve. And yet today isn't it a tragedy that there are still those who forget this point. Even though it's the case that human beings are not animals, God did not make us that way. Some people choose to live like one. Some people choose to direct their path in such a way to more mimic the animals than the high privilege with which God made them. In light of all that, consider the blessings that flow with this thought of marriage. It was Solomon who said in Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And many of us as husbands know certainly how much we have been blessed by our wives. And hopefully our wives would feel similarly with regard to us. In fairness, might it be stated, so far we've learned so many matters, not the least of which now might be this. Our world has taken such a dim, trivial, and frivolous view in so many ways toward marriage. People sometimes seem to marry for convenience, or marry because it's a byproduct of culture. That is not the reason. We've learned that marriage, of course, was instituted by God and it is for the express purpose of man's happiness, his companionship, his well-being. To enter into marriage lightly is an insult to the institution. It is an insult to the very design that God has embedded within it. But even more so than that, consider with me, if you would, yet some more interesting points based on these passages. We mentioned in passing that text in Matthew 19. Let's cast the spotlight just a bit more thoroughly upon it. what It was on that occasion that, God, that Jesus made this statement. When the Pharisees came before Him with an interest to entrap Him and to tempt Him, they of course did so not with the greatest earnestness of listening to the truth that was to be uttered, But rather they did so, again, just hoping to discredit the Lord in the eyes of those who would be His audience. But it was in verse number 6 of that chapter that the Lord said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And might we give some thought to what is contained in that simple passage. We certainly are aware, all of us who have attended a marriage, a wedding ceremony if you will, that we see the man, the groom, and we see the woman, the bride. But yet at this point, Jesus teaches us this truth. There's really three parties involved in marriage. There's more than just the man and the woman. Isn't it true that again, Jesus said, what therefore God hath joined together? The being that ultimately concludes, the one that actually consummates that marriage... It's not the person at the courthouse. It's not the individual who might be the officiating person, such as a preacher. It is God. It is God that joins that man and that woman in marriage. It is written, if you please, in the hallmark books of heaven. And so it is that marriage involves three parties. And until and unless that fact is understood, that marriage will never be as it ought to be. It will never have all the satisfying fulfillment. It will never, from the perspective of heaven, have all that it could possibly have. Marriage involves three parties. There's God, there's the man, and there's the woman. And as you can see, based on that, marriage is thus not merely a civil union. Oh, it's true, we obtain a marriage license as the law of the land dictates. And we do that because that's the proper and right thing to do, but finally, ultimately, and forthrightly, it is God that consummates it, and it is satisfied and fulfilled as it is written in the very halls of heaven. May you and I always remember that fact. And even when we perhaps attend a wedding ceremony to keep that thought in mind and hopefully embedded even in the minds of our children, so that they too will appreciate marriage as God has set it forth in His holy book. It is in that regard that we come to yet another point. Namely, that marriage is a deep and profound union. You might notice that Brother Bowles made reference to something like that in his statement. But might we use the Scriptures to approach it in the following way? Three times in the Holy Scriptures we find marriage identified literally as one flesh, where that union between the man and his wife is described as being one flesh. God said it in Genesis 2.24. The Lord said it in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. And also the inspired apostle Paul affirmed the same in Ephesians 5, verse 31. From three different perspectives, we find this powerful truth that this union is recognized in heaven as one flesh. We might in fact invite ourselves to consider what may be involved in that lovely description. One flesh, certainly that involves an intimacy. It involves that beautiful kind of interaction that God has not permitted in any other kind of relationship on earth. That intimacy is spoken of in a number of New Testament passages perhaps the most vivid in 1 Corinthians 7, where it was that Paul expressly said in verse number 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That directly teaches us that any way in which those blessings are shared outside that relationship between legitimate husband and wife constitutes fornication and therefore it is opposed to the will of God and is subject to eternal condemnation. We can see that though that degree of intimacy is but one part of this blessing of one flesh. For after all, think of those other places in which we read about the honor that accords to marriage. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, the inspired writer said, Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. What a continental divide between the honor that associates to marriage and on the other hand, this whoredom, this very bad set of circumstances, this defilement that associates to fornication. You see, all of us, and young people, listen carefully, please. You save yourself. You abstain in all ways from these matters of sexual behavior until you have found that person that you want to spend your life with. That person you love more than anyone else. And you would wish to not only assist him or her in making it to heaven, but you look forward to his or her assistance to you to do the same. And then you can enjoy these kind of matters in a way that never would be possible otherwise. And it is a great blessing to that marriage relationship indeed. In addition to all of that, consider some of those other things that Brother Bowles mentioned. The honor, the comradeship, the companionship, the fidelity. All that accords to that scriptural marriage. It is a fair thing to say that your spouse will be a very special and good friend to you. Able to know you better than anyone else. Able to answer the greatest needs of fellowship and companionship in the flesh in this life. And it will be a special, special thing indeed to journey hand in hand through the degree of years that God shall grant us enjoying that kind of fellowship and that kind of relationship. All these things so far have lifted marriage to an exceedingly high plateau, far higher than most men would be willing to confess and admit because the human family has in so many ways cheapened marriage. We've each seen it too many times on the news. We have seen it in the magazines as we walk through the grocery store checkout aisle about so-and-so has just entered his eighth marriage. And he's been divorced that many times as well and soon to enter number nine. It is nothing short of an absolute catastrophe to see in which that kind of marriage circumstance has been presented and approached in that light fashion. Marriage is an honorable estate. It is the oldest institution known to the human family. With these thoughts in mind as we've prepared ourselves to consider it, might I ask you to notice perhaps yet again as we highlight just a few of the features that we've seen so far and we seriously would wish to extend them. I have pulled these thoughts together for your consideration again with particular thought again on Genesis 2 and Matthew 19. As God in fact Married Adam and Eve, that man and woman, it is still true that it was a man and a woman. It was not two women, it was not two men. It was, in fact, that circumstance in which there was one woman for one man for life. And that little slogan or that little consideration is often a helpful one as we give thought to the Lord's exposition of that in Matthew 19. It was on that occasion again that Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And yet how sad it is to see time after time that the judge bangs his gavel, divorce granted, divorce granted, divorce granted, when all along the Lord said, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. We should give some consideration and thought, and our youngsters and we alike, should we be thoroughly equipped with knowledge on this marvelous institution so that we can help them appreciate and approach marriage in the way that they should. Marriage is a lifelong arrangement. That's the way God intended it. And when the two thus enter into that marriage bond, it should be their mentality And it should be their perspective that it should last until death. To enter into it any other way is to shortchange it. Again, it is to insult it and in a way to blaspheme it. It should be their attempt to enter it with that very powerful realization, this is the person with whom I wish to spend the remainder of my days in the flesh. In Romans 7 verse number 2, on that occasion, Paul directly himself said, that is not true, the woman is bound to her husband as long as the husband liveth. Thus Paul even teaching the realization that that in its intent was to last until death. And isn't that in most instances one of the statements made in the course of the marriage vows? Each one of them is asked, do you take him or her or till death do you part? That's a very interesting and a very profound statement. The two of them should give the most earnest consideration to that prior, of course, to the ceremony itself. But certainly when they give their consent with all the feelings of love in their heart that they do agree till death do us part, may they mean it, may they mean it through all the days of their life. When that is understood, it gives to us an understanding of just how far removed so many in our world have come with respect to the viewpoint on marriage. As you can see on that slide, I again would wish us to emphasize as parents and as grandparents, as aunts and uncles and others, that we might help our youngsters to understand just these points as they begin to approach the thought of finding that mate or that companion so that they will view marriage as they should. Because in light of what we've just learned tonight, there is a darker side to this. So far, we have looked at the brightness of God's Word with respect to marriage. But I would ask you to note just a few moments of just how dark the human family has brought its own view toward marriage. I'd like to begin with just a few thoughts and some statistics. We each are aware of just how easy it is to obtain a divorce. The laws of our land are sufficiently constructed such that if either party be it the man or the woman, wishes to have a divorce, all that must be done is for that person to go and obtain the services of an attorney or a lawyer, and immediately the proceedings will begin in order, and regardless what the other mate thinks, that divorce will in fact be granted. It will become final. The law in fact will enforce it. But notice how easy. One really doesn't even need to give any reasons. Irreconcilable differences, no-fault divorces. Divorce is so easy to obtain. And yet, as we've just noted, God intended it to be permanent. Look at just a few thoughts. These are not the most recent statistics that might be obtained, but they were the most complete ones that I could easily obtain. In the year 2000, only 10 years ago, in our country, the United States of America, there were some 1.04 million divorces, while at the same time, during that same year, some 2.36 million marriages. It doesn't take a great deal of mathematical effort to easily see that the divorce rate still, for that year at least, is hovering well over 40%, certainly approaching the 50% mark. It seems as if for several decades now, What we're told is that roughly one out of every two marriages will terminate in divorce. That's a sadness, isn't it? Don't we all understand? And aren't we all appreciative of the fact that is a tragedy given what we've learned so far tonight? Given these verses that have challenged us to understand what God perceives and desires marriage to be when in fact that's what man has made it. I mentioned earlier, Quite often on the news stories, light is even made of those who have entered into their 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th marriage. There's nothing funny about that. It should bring a tear to our eyes as we give thought to what the mockery that makes of this divine institution. This greatness to be seen from the book of God with regard to marriage. It perhaps then would be fair to ask, So what does the Bible teach about marriage? What does it teach about divorce? Having discussed the marriage part, what then are God's terms in which a given marriage might be scripturally and lawfully terminated according to heaven? Not necessarily according to man. It is still true that we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. And so what God decrees would be the only acceptable reasons and scriptural causes for divorce. Those must stand. What man may think is immaterial here, it is of no consideration to us. And so it is with that in mind, I would ask you to recall that scene from Matthew, the 19th chapter. We have already mentioned that at least twice this evening. But let me, in fact, present a little background to that as well, so that what the Lord said will perhaps take on an even greater meaning for the present discussion for us tonight. At the time our Savior was walking here upon the earth, there were two rather extreme schools of thought amongst the Jewish peoples relative to the matter of divorce. There were those, as you can see, that were of a rather liberal school known as the school of Hillel. He was one of the rather well-known rabbis who in fact taught that any cause for divorce was acceptable. If she just doesn't look nice enough to you, Good enough cause for divorce. At the far other end of the extreme, however, was the school of Shammai, in which this particular rabbi and those that were his disciples held to the appreciation that there was only one cause, rightful and lawful, for a divorce, and that was sexual infidelity on the part of her. You can well imagine how far apart these schools of thought were then And isn't it amazing how that 20 centuries later, there are still those two schools of thought rampant in our society today. Thus, when these Pharisees in Matthew 19, 3, came before our Savior and asked Him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They were directly, at least in their mind, putting Jesus, what they thought, was between a rock and a hard place. They felt sure that if He sided with a school of Hillel, that he would run away all those that were the school of Shammai. And on the other hand, if he sided with the school of Shammai, he would distance himself from those that were the disciples of the school of Hillel. They thought they certainly had Jesus just where they wanted him. For after all, no matter what he said, at least in their mind, he would alienate himself from a large portion of those of the Jewish society. Isn't it still amazing Jesus had no interest in satisfying the curiosities of people. He had no interest in bolstering the confidence or the pomp and circumstance of a person. His interest was the truth of God. And thus in the very next verse He said, "...Have ye not read?" These who were of the Jewish consideration should have known their scriptures, and thus He turned the table on them. Have you never read?" He took them all the way back to the scene of Genesis chapter 2. He pointed them back to the very institution of marriage and said, this is the way God made it. And this is the way He intended it to remain. Have ye not read that at the beginning He made them male and female? And then again in verse 6, He said, What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It is in light of that passage we can see again, Jesus wasn't interested in just satisfying the thoughts of those listening. He told them the truth. He took them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But might we notice also this thought? Jesus again said, What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It is in regard to that thinking that I would point you to verse number nine in that chapter. Matthew 19, verse number 9. Certainly one of the passages that answers so many of our questions on this point. Here Jesus taught, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her doth commit adultery. The Lord's statement obviously was very hard to those who heard because in the verses that followed, they even admitted, if it be so with us, it's better for a man not to marry. Jesus didn't disagree with them. Today, we need to still appreciate that what the Lord said there is inspired. That is God's identification and His intent with regard to divorce and in regard to remarriage. What did the Lord say in that passage? First of all, we should fairly at least admit this. Even under the best of circumstances, a divorce is a tragic thing. It indicates that that covenant has been breached. It indicates that one or both of the members of that marriage party have in fact broken the promise that they made at the time they were married. Even under the best of circumstances, it's a bad thing. No wonder in light of all of that, we begin to appreciate that God hates putting away. In Malachi 2.16, in the days even of the Old Testament, in that discussion in which we read about the criterion and the discussion of divorce even then, the prophet Malachi said God hates putting away because again it identifies a promise has been broken. But even more so than that, Jesus said some other things that we should understand as well. Any person who proceeds and procures this divorce and does so for any other cause than fornication, if that person remarries, that person commits adultery. And that person in that second marriage, if you please, is in a continuously adulterous situation. It's not that it can be made right in any other way. Notice again the Greek verb that the Lord employs. He said, Committeth. In the Greek, that is a present tense, continuous action verb, meaning that one keeps on committing adultery so long as that second marriage is in force. Whosoever putteth away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. Marriage is not something then that we can terminate with ease, enter into any number of others that we might so choose and think that God is pleased or happy with that. As the Lord here said, and who better than he should know the details, the, specif- the specifications, and the regulations concerning marriage. Whoso putteth away his wife, and we learn in other gospel accounts, that doesn't go just for men, but it's also true for women. Whoever puts away that mate, that spouse, For some cause other than fornication and proceeds then to marry or enter into a second marriage, at least according to the laws of the land, that person is now living in an an adulterous situation. But isn't it amazing the Lord went on even beyond that. What about that person who is married in that second marriage? Jesus also said, Whoso that marrieth her doth also commit adultery. Thus, both of those in that second marriage, it is an adulterous union. Both of them are guilty of adultery. That takes on an even added appreciation, doesn't it? When we realize from Galatians 5, as well as other passages, that adultery will keep one out of heaven. Adultery, you see, is a serious matter. It is in fact so serious that Paul spoke of it in 1 Corinthians 6 also in other places in which He listed it amongst various sins, of which one again will be eternally condemned. It is in light of those passages, we see the consequences there at the bottom. The consequences that go along with this. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, as well as Romans thirteen nine, we see that this adulterous union is one in which again God is not pleased because again, this person who has obtained this divorce and proceeded to marry again, really is still in the eyes of God married to the first mate. There was never a scriptural cause for the first divorce. Thus, that person really has two living mates. That is a great sadness to consider then the way in which that is presented to us in the Word of God. I might invite you to notice also this occasion. That leads us now to ask, what about remarriage? If it is the case that we've noted Matthew 19, 9, we have yet to speak much about that exception clause that the Lord made. He said, except it be for fornication. Suppose then that one of the members of that marriage, either the man or the woman, is guilty of fornication. That is, physical sexual infidelity. According to the Lord's exception then, the individual that was not the guilty one of that does have by God the right to divorce that, that guilty mate and if that person so chooses, to procure another marriage. Of course, with a person who is eligible to marry scripturally. That would be the meaning of that exception clause. And that allows us to see that in the scriptures then, there really are but, is but one means in the eyes of God in heaven, for there to be obtainment for a divorce and then a consequent remarriage. It is for that instance and situation in which one of the members of that marriage is guilty of sexual infidelity, fornication. Then and only then can the innocent one obtain that divorce and of course enter into a second marriage if he or she so pleases. That, of course, teaches us that that person who is guilty of the fornication is never granted by God the right to remarry. Never. That's a matter that our world, again, has failed to appreciate, isn't it? That one who is the guilty party is never granted by God the scriptural right to remarry. That means that person must forever again live single, never able to enter into another marriage union. In addition to that, we can appreciate some of these verses that highlight in other passages some things that relate to this as well. There are some who will make a rather significant usage of some other passages in the Old Testament, such as Ezekiel 16, 2 Chronicles 21. In these passages, divorce is used to describe that spiritual relationship between ancient Israel or Judah And God, in which cases, in so many ways, God told them, you have been unfaithful to me. God had been a faithful husband to them, but they had engaged in idolatry, they had forfeited their relationship with Him, and had gone after other lovers, as some of the minor prophets would describe it. Those passages, inasmuch as they related to those spiritual matters, do not have the bearing on our New Testament understanding of this physical marriage relationship. Because you'll notice as we come here, the meaning in Matthew 19, Jesus was asked a specific physical question about physical marriage. And He gave an explicit and direct answer, didn't He? It is an answer that still many would prefer not to hear. But it nonetheless is a vital answer, and it is incredibly important. We've noted the lightness that characterizes the approach that some make to marriage treating it much like craps, going to a grocery store and buying something. If you don't like it, throw it away and go to the store and buy something else. That is not the way that God originated marriage. Again, He affirmed that it's one woman for one man for life. Now in quickness we might certainly say, till death do us part. When the time comes that one or the other of those of course suffers death, we can then appreciate that the one that remains alive is thus able, according to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, to enter into another marriage relationship so long as it is another person who is eligible to marry appropriately. And so, death and fornication, the only two ways the Bible ever describes the conclusion or termination, if you please, of a marriage. And only in the case of that fornication is their remarriage, at least in that light. It is a whole new matter, of course, when a mate dies and one enters into that new union. Our study this evening in light of these matters has brought us to these concluding thoughts, if we might share them briefly. The compromise that faces many congregations. This compromise of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In many instances, there's little question about the beauty of marriage. It comes when one gives thought to divorce and then remarriage. What kind of teaching must we put forth? What kind of matters must we set forth as we preach and teach and help others understand what God's book says about this? We have studied those passages tonight that shed so much light upon it. And in fact, it is a great case to consider, isn't it? For in it, we have learned that the matter of marriage, as great as it is, that contract can be breached. And if fornication is the cause, then that innocent party may remarry with God's blessing. That person who is guilty may not, ever. Furthermore, we appreciate that when that marriage does come to its conclusion at the time of death, and that living one can again proceed to remarry according to the will and plan of God. As we've given thought to these things tonight, it is a compromise that many congregations face on to how to handle those couples that come their way who may be in issues like these. As we approach the subjects with delicacy, but always with truth, may we always stand firmly and squarely and beautifully upon the truth of God and His Word shall always prevail. For indeed, didn't Paul say that God's Word cannot be bound? Tonight, if there would be one or more in the audience who upon giving thought to these matters, perhaps we've each been encouraged to appreciate our own marriages better, but also to help others that we may know to also understand well how special the marriage union is. If there would be one or more with sin in your life, maybe you've never become a Christian. Perhaps you have never yet to respond publicly to that initial call of the gospel invitation. Tonight would be the greatest night there could be. For you, your entire eternity will change course tonight if you will obey the Lord. For you see, your sins currently are having you in line for the doom of hell. If you've reached that age of knowing wrong from right, knowing that Jesus died for you, knowing currently that you're a sinner and are lost, if you know that that plan of salvation is in effect and in force, why delay? Why procrastinate? Tomorrow night will be no better night than this one. Tonight, you could have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. You could have your name written in that place where no man can erase it. Only your unfaithfulness would cause the Lord to erase it. If we could, in fact, assist you this evening, we could only ask in a moment that you would let us know that, if you would. Coming down this aisle, we'll be happy to make note of your belief and your repentance, but also to aid you in that confession and to assist you in your baptism. If you have done that at some point in life, but you haven't lived faithfully to that calling, you've brought shame or disgrace upon yourself as a Christian, perhaps upon your family, upon the church, upon the name of Christ, don't remain in that state. Even though that sadness certainly rests upon the mind of the Lord, He's willing to forgive it and to completely forget it. If, of course, you will only repent of it and come appropriately to Him, and we'll pray with you, we'll pray for you if any of those things would be the need of your life this evening, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. And there's an entire congregation here that would be excited to rejoice with you, and the angels in heaven will do the same, Luke 15, verses 7 and 8. If the calling of your heart is calling you at this time and you need to respond, why not do that? Well, together we stand and while we sing.